Good morning. For those of you who don't normally attend here, or maybe you have but you haven't met me yet, my name is Jim Grossman. I serve here as a pastoral intern. I'm about five to six months through a nine-month internship. Uh, for those of you who do know me, I'd like to continue to thank you for all the encouragement and support that you've been, and just say that it's, it's a real blessing in preparation for ministry, so thank you. Uh, today I'll be preaching from Mark 9, uh, verses 2 through 13 on the Transfiguration. It's page 714 in the Church Bibles, if you would turn there with me. We'll read the account of it found in God's Word, starting with verse 2, again, page 714, if you're using a Church Bible. This can be a difficult passage. There are a few words in the Greek that I'll read, and we'll get to explaining, just so you know when I read them in the text, and that doesn't throw you. Verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there, Hopathay, and there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, because they were so frightened. Then a cloud, Egineto, then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first, and apokathista, and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. Let's pray and ask God for understanding in his word today. Lord, we pray and ask that you would teach us with spirit-taught words that as we listen, we would be discerning and attentive to what you would have to teach us today. And I ask for your help to be able to remove from us any distractions we might face this morning, either around us, in our minds, or in our hearts as we look at your word and think and listen and worship with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We pray for your help and your wisdom, knowing that you give your wisdom generously to all who ask it. We ask it. In your name, amen. Well, if, you, if you like to follow along in an outline, I've got three points today. First point, introduction to the transfiguration. The transfiguration, this is a, it's a hard text. It It can be. What we have here is a a unique, unrepeatable event. Just as Pastor Joe 
said this last week about the event of the resurrection, that it is unique and unrepeatable event. His illustration was about science being a good method to discern facts through repeatable tests to get the same result each time. But the resurrection of Jesus was a one-time event. It can't be discerned by a scientific method because it's not repeatable and science can't speak to an unrepeatable event. And that's what we have here, a specific, unrepeatable, unearthly, supernatural, incomparable event. It's a moment, a moment in time, a a one-time event with a, a specific purpose, a divine moment from God, a meeting, if you will, of the supernatural, a meeting of the divinity and glory of God being shown in and through his Son. And it's difficult because we're using finite language to describe the infinite, like ants trying to explain humans or the sun in the sky. Or Maybe that's not a fair analogy. Maybe a better, it's better to liken the finite, finite describing the infinite like children trying to describe something they can't, something they don't have the vocabulary to explain. And so you watch them struggle through trying to explain something they saw and what happened without having a full ability to do so. And even for adults, there's an indefinable quality about life. There's many qualities about life that are difficult to explain. To borrow a French term, there's a je ne sais quoi about them, that little something, a a quality that eludes description and an exact expression of accuracy or measure. A natural being describing a supernatural event in, in the best way they can. And so it can be hard to describe. But even if you see a miraculous sight like this, it doesn't always equal belief. It doesn't mean you'll believe what you see. It's, it's beyond our realm and, and it's so difficult to accept. So, you know, seeing a miracle doesn't necessarily mean you believe a miracle happened. For example... Just look at the Gospels and all the miracles Jesus did and many who didn't believe what happened right in front of them. John twelve twenty seven, Jesus says, No, it was for this reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, This voice was for your benefit, not mine. So the whole crowd heard the voice. Some acknowledged it was a voice, but some of them who heard it, they couldn't believe it was a voice, so they said it had thundered. Or another example, in Acts at the day of Pentecost and speaking in tongues. They heard tongues, but they didn't want to believe it. Their belief structure couldn't account for it, so they said these men are drunk and babbling. So seeing a miracle or supernatural event doesn't always equal belief, yet we're presented in life with the supernatural interjected into the natural order. And here we are in Mark as a result of verse-by-verse exposition of the text at this passage, and we're faced with an event, with the supernatural, with the divine, with God. The second point, explanation. Uh, Verse 2, Jesus leads Peter, James, and John up the mountain. Just them, those four, and there before them, in front of them, he is transfigured. What, what does that mean? What is a transfiguration? That, that was my first question. I've read this before, and maybe you have too, but each time I read it, I think, wow, that sounds wild, like just beyond description. What actually happened? I, I wish I could have seen it so that I would know what it looked like instead of having to picture it, instead of having to picture and try to figure out in, in our minds what is a transfiguration. 
The Greek word there is metamorpho. You might recognize it from the English word metamorphosis. It's made up of two Greek words, meta and morpho. Meta means after, afterward, beyond, and morpho by itself means to form, to fashion. So to metamorph means to be fashioned, changed, formed beyond what is the normal. The Greek definition for metamorpho in Strong's lexicon is to change into another form, to transform, to transfigure. The first word I grabbed at when trying to describe the transfiguration was metaphysical. The event of it is beyond what you would see. It's not a normal occurrence. It's not a repeatable event. It's very metaphysical. I hadn't looked up the Greek for transfigure yet and fi find out that it was metamorpho, but it makes sense. It's a change. It's a metaphysical thing. It's beyond the natural order. It's clear that it's a moment of import. It's an event of importance, and at first glance when you look at it, it's not easy to wrap your head around. It leaves you, verse 6, sort of frightened and not knowing what to say. And so how do you describe something that you have a difficulty describing? You might say something like it was white, whiter than the whitest white you've ever seen. It's whiter than white could ever even be made white. That's how bright and dazzling white his robes appeared at this change in verse 3. Matthew 17, 2 says that his face shone like the sun and his clothes were white as light. And so on a practical level of telling the story, it's what happened, it's what took place. But on a theological level or a level of meaning, you might ask, well, what does that mean? What does that mean that his appearance changed and was dazzling bright and white? Verse 7, the cloud that appears. In Matthew 17, it says the cloud that we see in verse 7 was a bright cloud. And Peter, who saw this event when writing about it in Second Peter chapter 1, says it was an event of majesty and glory up on the mountain. There's a theme here that's important about Jesus and who he is. See, this wasn't a change in Jesus to the extent that he somehow changed fundamentally what he was. There are false teachings out there that will claim that, that Jehovah's Witnesses will claim he was only a human. Mormons also will tell you that Jesus was simply a man, and this event is where he now is somehow turned into a god, and when he goes to heaven, he'll get his own planet. And if you're good enough, maybe you can become a god and get your own planet too. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does teach that Jesus is fully man, tempted in every way, and he had to increase in learning. He had a physical hu human brain and body. But the Bible also teaches Jesus is fully God, fully divine, represented in this passage by the theme of light. Dazzling white, whiter than the brightest white, his face shining like the sun, his clothes as bright as light itself. The theme of light and whiteness and brightness is a biblical theme for God, God is light. Leviticus 9 and Exodus 24, the light from the fire of God, the cloud that held his glory. Exodus 40, verses 34 to 35, the cloud that settled over the tent of meeting and held his glory. Numbers 14, his glory again, appearing at the tent of meeting. Second Chronicles 6.18, Solomon prays at the dedication of the temple and he says, but will God in very deed dwell with men on earth? Behold, Heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house which I have built. 
the Jewish Targum, which has the scripture and then explanation along with it, says of Second Chronicles 6.18, But will God in very deed dwell with men? But who could have imagined, who could have thought it credible that God should place his majesty among men dwelling upon the earth? Behold, the highest heavens, the middle heavens, and the lowest heavens cannot bear the glory of thy majesty. For thou art the God who sustaineth all heaven and the earth and the deep and all that is in them, nor can this house which I have built contain thee. He said, Solomon said this in his prayer because just before he prayed this, the cloud had came over the temple and had filled the temple with God's glory. You can see it recorded just before Second Chronicles 6 and Second Chronicles 5. The trumpeters and musicians joined in unison to give praise and thanks to the Lord. The singers raised their voices in praise. He is good. His love endures forever. Then the temple of the Lord was filled with the cloud, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. Luke 2.9, with the appearance of the angelic messengers, the glory of the Lord shone around them. Throughout Scripture, God is light. 1 John 1.5, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, The God of this age, that would be Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This is what the Bible teaches. And in light of this, as we look at Mark 9, we see the transfiguration is the glory of God shown in Christ. The light of the gospel displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And more than just the image of God, Jesus is the Word made flesh, John 1.14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's the same word from John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. The Logos was Theos, and that Logos became flesh. The one whom John the Baptist testified about and whom John called the Word, whose glory we had seen, the glory of the one and only. So you might ask me, why John 1.1? Why bring that up? The answer is because Jesus was the Word made flesh, and the Word was God at the beginning. Jesus didn't always have a physical body. For all eternity, Jesus was not always flesh, but he was always God. And that's important for the transfiguration, because when his appearance was changed, it wasn't a change in his nature. In his nature, he was already God, and Though he could grasp that because he was God, Philippians 2, he laid aside his rights and took on flesh. So going back to 2 Corinthians 4.2, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So there's imagery there, too, that's similar you use secret and shameful ways to try and hide something, but the truth plainly set forth shines the light on what's hidden. And verse 3, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the mind of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So there you have it. Jesus is God veiled in human flesh. The transfiguration, the change in his appearance and not nature is sort of like a, a peeling back of, of the skin of Jesus to see his glory as God. 
to see the fullness of his glory, his light, his radiance contained in his person, that he was not just a man or prophet. Revelation's description of Jesus when he returns describes him as radiant, shining like the sun. What he had from eternity was veiled. At the transfiguration, it's unveiled for a moment, and then at the end, it will be fully unveiled in his return. That's the theological application. And so then, consider the practical application for a moment. Jesus isn't showing off here at the transfiguration. He just demanded his disciples, and anyone who would follow him, he demanded their total allegiance. So it's practical to show the disciples and whoever would follow Jesus that this Jesus in chapter 8, who demands your life, that to lose your life, to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him, is completely worth it. He is God, and if you want to save your life, you need him. Back to the text, verse 4. And there, Hopethe, there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. I mentioned the Greek, Hopethe, because it doesn't come through in English that the word appear in verse 4 and 7 are actually different words. In verse 4, Hopethe's root word is hophthanomai, or maybe to say it a little more English, optonomai, optometrist. Maybe you've ever been to the optometrist for your eyes. The word there has to do with sight. It has to do with appearance, to gaze, to inspect, continued inspection. And James, John, and Peter were watching Moses, who represents the law, and Elijah, who represents the prophets, talk with Jesus. John and John 1 said Jesus came in his glory, full of grace and truth. And there's imagery there. This giving of the law is an act of grace. And the prophets who spoke it as truth. And Jesus coming in full of glory of, and full of grace and truth. It's, it's quite beautiful. There's a lot of imagery there. Uh, a lot of theme and a lot packed into what's just happened. There's also a, a theme of sight here. Uh, the blind man's sight was restored in 822, going through the disciples' then see he's the Messiah, the sight of the transfiguration, an unveiling of Jesus' nature, taking the eyes, the minds blinded by the God of the sage and giving them sight by exposing the truth with light. But what happened here as they appeared before him, this wasn't just a sight. It wasn't just a vision. I don't believe so. The three were able to gaze at them and inspect them, inspect them so much so they determined they were real, real enough for Peter to determine uh, and suggest that we build them real houses to live in right here where they were at, verse 5. Now, he was afraid, and as we said, it's it's an event of importance that's not easy to wrap your head around at first glance. It leaves you, verse 6, sort of frightened and, and not knowing what to say, so I don't want to look too far into what Peter had to say. He said it because of two reasons, because he was afraid and he didn't know what to say. It is interesting and suggestive, though, that he put forward the idea to build them a a real structure to stay in. So it's suggestive. It's not just a vision. It it actually happened. Okay, so now moving on to verse 7. Then a cloud, egoneto, then a cloud appeared. Egoneto, the other word translated as appeared, comes from the root ginomai, which means to be, to exist. So this cloud came to be. It came into existence. Uh, The other account here of Matthew is is helpful. As we said earlier, it says the cloud is a bright cloud, but it also says 
the cloud appeared while Peter was still speaking. So what Peter had to say, being afraid, maybe wasn't all that important. It interrupted him, and a voice came from the cloud as if to say, don't listen to Peter. And the voice said, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Listen to what he said, Mark 8, 31. He'll be handed over to suffer, die, and raise again. Pick up your cross, follow him, lose your life for him and his gospel in order to say it. And listen to what he's going to say, Mark 9, 31. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed, killed, and after three days rise again. This is the punch of the text. We have to see that. We have to see how the Father and Son are so tied together on this, so in agreement that this crucifixion, this death, has to take place. He has to be rejected, he has to suffer, and he has to die. Now, after the voice of the Father speaks, and they are headed down the mountain, verse 9, Jesus tells them not to tell anyone what they had seen until after the Son of Man rises from the dead, which means he'll have to be rejected and suffer and die. He has to die first before he can raise from the dead. And so they discuss, verse 10, what does this mean, rising from the dead? Well, you have to know that resurrection isn't a new concept, that it was around before Jesus and his resurrection. It wasn't new with, with Jesus. Uh, 1446 B.C. for uh, dating of Exodus 32, Moses asks to be blotted out of the book you have written instead of the Israelites being blotted out. 979 B.C., Psalm 69 talks about the book of life. In 539 B.C., at the end of Daniel in chapter 12, it says, But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. The Jewish belief was in a resurrection of the dead, all the dead, all those multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth, awakening and resurrecting, some to eternal life, tongue to shame and eternal contempt. And, and they knew this. When Lazarus was dead in the tomb four days before Jesus raises him to life, he tells Martha that Lazarus will rise again. And Martha said to Jesus, well, I, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So Peter, James, and John discussed what he, what's he mean rising from the dead. No doubt they were thinking of the resurrection at the last day. Now, they knew the same as we do that certain things are prophesied that before that last day comes, before Jesus comes back, that have to take place. We read Revelation and, and we see those prophecies. They knew the scriptures and they knew Malachi and they knew that Elijah the prophet comes back before the Messiah does. So verse 11 is, is a good question. It's, it's practical. Why did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come back first? It kind of looks like we've seen you, Jesus, Peter, who Peter had just said was the Messiah, verse 29, says Christ, and Christ is the Greek word translated for the Hebrew word Messiah. So Peter had just said, we see you, the Christ, the Messiah, and, and we know we've seen you, but we're not sure we've seen Elijah yet. Sort of to say we, we, they knew Malachi 3.1 says that there will be a messenger who goes on ahead of him and prepare the way for the Messiah, and that Malachi 4.5 names that prophet as Elijah. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Remember, they asked John, Are you a prophet? Are you Elijah? Jesus asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? 
Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say a prophet of old. Interestingly enough, Elijah is one of the two that appears after the transfiguration on the mountain. But the disciples didn't seem to take that to mean Elijah had come first. Maybe they did, but they still asked, why did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Well, verse 13, Jesus answered it. Elijah has come back. In, in Matthew, the transfiguration is in Matthew 17. Before that, in Matthew 11, Jesus speaking about John the Baptist says, For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is the Elijah who is to come. So Jesus names John the Baptist as Elijah. And Mark 9.13, he has already come, and they've done everything to him they wished. Jesus in verse 12 said of Elijah or John, what Elijah did, he comes first and restores all things, restores apokathista. And then in verse 12 there he asks him a question. You see that verse 12 is kind of in two parts. So let's start with what Elijah did. Because to me, I always thought, well, why would Elijah restore all things? Won't it be Jesus who does that? Uh, the Greek word for restore there, apokathista, means to restore to its former state, to be in its former state, to restore again. The prophecy was that he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. So John preached and baptized, and Jesus asked them about John, what did you go out in the desert to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's house. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The people went out to see John, and his ministry was to turn the hearts of the people back to the Father, to prepare the way for the Messiah, to restore all things in preparation for Jesus. And so that's, that's the local context, and it's fulfilled. But I was thinking about that word, restoration, in terms of to a former state. You know, if you think about restoration in a larger term that way, with the lens pulled back to, to all of history, would you even want that? The best humanity ever had it was in Eden, but even going back to Eden isn't going back to perfection. Even when humanity had all things good, when we had communion with God, all of it, we still had free will, the potential to sin. We were still in a state that could be corrupted. Go back to Eden, why would you? Restoration of our hearts back to God? Yes, that's salvation. That's redemption. We want reconciliation to the original state of communion with God. And in that aspect only, I'd go back to the ideal of Eden. But still, even then, if I was Adam in Eden, I could sin and I'd screw it up. I'd rather look forward to after Jesus' death and resurrection when my sins will be paid for and I'll be raised new with a new body which will be incorruptible and I won't be able to screw it up. My sins will already be paid for. The gospel is better than the garden. So that's part one. Yes, to be sure, Elijah comes to restore all things. Verse 12, to, re to restore the hearts of the children back to the Father in preparation of making the way clear for the Messiah. But part two, verse 12, Jesus asks a follow-up question. Why then is it written, the Son of Man 
must suffer much and be rejected. Jesus' question in verse 12, he really already gave them the answer. He already mentioned to them in 831, the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected. Why then? That's the question in 12. Go look back at the second half of 831 to answer his question in 12. He must be killed and after three days rise again. And why? The answer is for redemption. God's redemptive plan, the gospel. Losing your life for its sake. 2 Corinthians 4.2 It is the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. We must not worship the gospel. Rather, the gospel is what it is. Gospel means good news. And the light of the gospel, the light of the good news, displays what? The glory of Christ, who is God. That is why our lives are to be centered around the glory of God. This is why our message is the gospel. It displays the good news of the glory of Christ. That we don't want to go back to the garden. We don't want to be corruptible. We want to be given new bodies, made incorruptible, and spend eternity with God. God's redemptive plan of the gospel Losing your life for its sake, that's better than having what this world has to offer because Mark 8.35, what good is it if you gain the whole world? If you gain everything that would ever make you happy, but then you lose your soul, what does that benefit you? Could you trade anything for the value of a human soul? What could equal its value? You couldn't give anything in trade for your life. I mean, what if you died and your family got a million dollars in money? They love you. Don't you think they'd rather have you than money which gets used up and gone? Wouldn't a wife prefer to have her husband, a child, their father? What could you even give that could equal the value of your life? Could you give anything to God to buy your way into heaven? No. And that's actually good news because it means you need help. You need a Savior. You can't do it on your own. And I, I think that's comforting, actually. It's a, it's a weight that you can't bear and you can't do it on your own. And so you need someone else to atone for your sins because you can't. You need light to reveal and remove your darkness. Think about trying to clean something off. So if you're going to clean something up, you're going to have to go get some cleaning supplies. You need something clean in order to clean a dirty thing off. You need something to clean something dirty. You need to bring something perfectly clean, something white, whiter than the whitest white, in order to fully remove the dirt, the stain, We can't be dirty and try and clean ourselves. We need someone clean to take on our dirt. That's Jesus. He takes on our dirt, our filth, our stain. And on the cross, he pays our price, the price we should have paid. And if we reject him, the price we will pay is not $1 million. It's the price of our life. You will pay with your life. The wages of sin is death. And on the cross, Jesus dies our death. He pays our price, the weight of which we cannot bear. He pays for it with his life, with his blood. The scripture says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. Chapter 9, verse 6, when faced with God, when faced with his glory, it's frightening and you don't know what to say. Moments like that are arresting. It's a moment we'll all face. At the end, at the resurrection of the dead, we'll all be faced with his glory, and we'll either be raised to eternal life or eternal shame and contempt. And it's not God's desire for anyone 
to die an eternal death. He takes no pleasure in the death of anyone. You might say, there might be those who say, you know, the wages of sin being death, that's not, that doesn't seem fair. The way of God is not fair, but God says, is my way unfair? Isn't it your ways that are unfair? Yet man still says, the way of the Lord is not just. Are my ways unjust? Is it not your ways that are unjust, says God? Therefore, I will judge each of you according to your own ways, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent. Turn from all your offenses. Then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart. Get a new spirit. Why will you die? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. That's Ezekiel 18. Repent and live. Get a new heart. Get a new spirit. That's Jesus in Mark 1.15. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. That's God, Mark 9.7. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Listen to him. It's, it's maybe not really hear him, but listen to him. It's kind of like a child ask, parent asking a child, did you hear me? Well, yeah, they may have physically heard you with their ears, but if you're asking them if you, they heard you, you're, it's to ask why they're not doing what you told them to listen to. And it's kind of that way with the father saying this. Listen to him. Accept what he says. Do it. Listen to it. Listen to him. The son who said, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me in the gospel will save it. Essentially, he said, I'll die for you, Mark 8.31. You must live for me, Mark 8.34. You must lose your life for me the same way I will give mine up for you. It's a short little story here and then application. So last Friday evening, uh, after Joe's Good Friday sermon from Mark 8, someone asked me, do I really have to give him everything? Uh, what Joe said, does he really want it all? Is that what he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me means? I said, he wants your whole life. For the person who has repented, you've received sonship from him. You are his child. God has your whole life. You're no longer a slave to sin and death. You're God's slave, bought at a price, and he wants your whole life. But he isn't looking for every like microsecond to be like, some kind of personal oral evangelism. It's more like he's talking about it like this. Are you giving up your life for him or are you trying to gain something with your life? Because Mark 8, 36, what could you even gain? You can't buy your way in. You can't pay the price for your soul. It's, it's about what, you know, getting at the cost of following Jesus. What kind of cost is that? It's, you know, read scripture, 1 Timothy 16, put your hope in don't put your hope in this world, put in wealth, put your hope in God who richly provides us everything for our enjoyment. So it's not like either or, it's, it's both and. When you're seeing Jesus say you have to give up your life for him and lose it, you're asking what does that mean? You have to realize he's not creating a system or structure that neglects the Father's care for you. So application. God will take care of your physical needs, bread, fish, yes, your daily needs, all of that. But he does it according to the riches of his glory, his glory in Christ Jesus. It's really the same message in the Old Testament, Genesis 14, 2, the Lord will provide. That's the same as in the New Testament, my God will meet all your needs. And Jesus 
He does it according to the riches of his glory, his glory in Christ Jesus. At the, Jesus at, who we see at the transfiguration in his glory, fully manifesting his divine nature, the rich, dazzling, white, bright nature of his glory that the Lord will provide as he provided a substitute sacrifice for Abraham in Genesis 14. He provides a substitute sacrifice for us in Jesus, as Jesus told us in Mark 8 and 9. Listen to him, what he said was that he must suffer and die in our place and rise again. This is the gospel that you must believe in order to receive salvation. You must repent of your sin, the sin he died for, and accept the free gift. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. This gospel is not to be held up above all other things. This gospel, this good news, holds up Christ above all other things. It is the light that shines the glory of Christ, and it is truly the good news we must live in and go and share. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, here we are in your presence at a moment of meeting with you. We we see your glory, and, and it can frighten us. We know we're imperfect and in need. We're glad you suffered for us, that you died for us, instead of us dying for us. To pay for our own sin, we couldn't, and so you made a way to reconcile us to the Father by paying for our sins with your life so that we can repent and live. I ask for boldness for us, that we can share the light of the message of the gospel, that the light of it would shine through us as broken clay pots, not giving a picture that we're perfect clay pots, but that the broken spots in us, the holes in the clay pots that we are, that your light would shine through us, that your glory would shine outward through our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen. You're dismissed.